Tēnā koutou, no mai haere mai. Welcome to this Q&A tō tātou anamata, our future special. Ko Jack Tame maho, I'm Jack Tame. Milk, meat and motor cars. The way we think about those three M's in New Zealand is about to change. Tomorrow, the Climate Change Commission will give the government its final advice on how we should meet our climate change commitments. It's arguably the most significant milestone in the history of New Zealand's response to climate change. Climate change is already affecting our lives. Big floods, big droughts, big storms. And the scientific consensus is that as the world continues to warm, the impacts are only going to become more extreme. Just day after day, but we won't notice it. But you go through months and you wonder, well, why have we had four years of warmer than normal temperatures? In the time global warming has been a major concern, New Zealand has done a poor job of reducing its greenhouse gas emissions. Since 1990, our gross emissions went up 26%, driven mainly by agriculture and transport emissions. We have way more cows and way more cars. In fact, per capita, New Zealand is among the largest greenhouse gas emitters in the world. Of course, a global crisis requires a global response. With 2015's Paris Agreement, countries set different reductions targets to try to reduce global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. New Zealand put its targets under the Zero Carbon Act, which also established the Climate Commission to monitor our progress and advise our government on a pathway to emissions reductions. For all the big storms, the big droughts and the big floods, there has been a lot of big talk. Now, it's time for big action. The Commission's draft report was delivered in January. It's a dense and detailed document. We would need a week to go through it. So today we're going to look at a selection of the most contentious issues on our path of reductions, the things that will most noticeably impact your life. We've got a studio audience who we will invite to ask some questions, plus a panel here in our studio. Mike Smith is the climate spokesperson for the National Iwi Chairs Forum. Tēnā koe. Tēnā koe, Jack. Rod Carr is the chair of the Climate Change Commission. Kia ora. Kia ora, Jack. Tamitha Paul is a Wellington City Councillor with a climate change portfolio. Atamarie. Morena. And Tim Mackle has been the boss of Dairy New Zealand for 16 years now. Morena. Uh, Morena Jack. <laughs> look surprised by that. You I still look like, very youthful, Tim. I was only like 20 when I started. <laughs> um, we will start with the man of the moment. Rod, you made it clear in the interim report that our current government policies aren't enough for New Zealand to hit its emissions targets. In broad terms, how much will New Zealand life have to change for us to meet our commitments? Jack, I think over the next 30 years, we will need to change how we produce energy, how we move things around and how we get around, also what we produce and how we produce it. Tim, we know that agriculture makes up 48% of New Zealand's emissions at the moment. Clearly, there were some significant recommendations made in the draft report from the mm -hmm. Climate Commission. If agriculture is our biggest emitting sector, shouldn't it have to make the biggest sacrifices? Well, I think uh, we are absolutely committed to agriculture and um, you know, on that basis uh, we're in there and we're already moving and I think that's really important. Like your opening piece that talked about the numbers, I think we need to drill in a little bit further actually because between 1990 and 2020, uh, ag in general went up 17% in its total emissions against transport at almost 100%. Now within that dairy went up a lot more, mm. over 100%, so let's put that on the table now, but that's because we swapped sheep for cows. At the same time, our exports went up, inflation adjusted 400% during that period. So actually we're generating a lot more value for the country right now. 
yes, we've got to run at this thing head on, but at the same time, the story is actually a lot more positive. If we had not made improvements that we have so far, genetics, management, all these things, we'd have a, a footprint that's 25% greater than we do now. So we've got to keep working at that. OK, we're going to dig into the situation in the agriculture sector a little bit more in a couple of minutes. Mike, what did you make of the draft advice from the Climate Change Commission? Well, I think it's a good start, but uh, speed and scale is what's required. And it's not about achieving the minimum uh, that we can do, but it's about uh, achieving as much as we can do as a country and then even considering going even further. There's a lot at stake. Failure's not an option for us. Is there a um, collective view in Te Ao Māori about climate change and what needs to be done? Uh, yes, I've done some surveys amongst the Māori community and uh, pretty much I'd say 80% of our people uh, understand what's happening and agree that change needs to occur now. Is there opportunity in that change? Uh, well, there's opportunity to protect the future for our mokopunas, and I think that's what's at stake. Tamitha, you're on the front line of um, of making laws and trying to trying to get people to support um, climate change efforts. You've had a significant week. Your councillors have voted to support a long-term plan that includes substantial funding for bike lanes in Wellington. But from your experience as a climate change policy advocate. Why do so many people struggle to engage with climate change? Um, I think we can all accept that, you know, if you ask most people nowadays if they care about climate change and if they want climate action, most people, I believe, would say yes. I don't think we're mm. having this battle against climate deniers. It's more about how we go about um, doing that climate action. But what I've found is that, you know, when the rubber hits the road, sometimes literally um, people are not willing to make that change because, like you said at the beginning, it affects their everyday lives. So... Yes, we've given $200 million for cycle lanes, but the other side of that means that we're taking out car parks. It means that there will be less lanes and there's a cost to that, to that action. So what I've found is that it's easy to declare climate emergencies. It's easy to say that this is the, the moment of our generation, but when it comes to doing that action, we are the ones on the ground in the community working with our communities, working with local hapu and iwi to actually make solutions that will work for our community, that we know suit our community and is the real climate action in our community. But if global warming is the crisis that scientists say it is, why don't people care? I think people do care. Um, I, I know that um, for Māori communities, um, the taiao, the natural environment, is at the centre of everything that we do. For Pacific communities, it's the fact that their whenua is under threat um, from, from being inundated by sea level rise. Um, you know, it's about jobs. People do care. Mm. Climate change as a concept has, be has become so... Um, it, it has been historically so mm. academic and out of reach for the everyday person, they feel like they're bad for driving their cars or bad for drinking milk or eating meat. But actually, people do care about it. There will be a period where it's um, inconvenient and uncomfortable, but we have to get through that together, and we know that we can get through these challenges together. Rod, you have received vast numbers of submissions on your advice, 15,000, I think, mm -hmm. at, at last count. But you've been criticised by some for not providing accurate costings mm -hmm. around the advice you've offered government. Why didn't you do that? Well, I think the first thing is there is a substantial amount of economic data <clears throat> embedded in the work that has been released and is publicly available on our website. So I think those who are concerned about that should actually brief themselves appropriately. There has been a question about the release of the underlying source codes to our models. We will be doing that. We've always said we would. Uh, and I think the final thing is our advice is on the direction of policy. And as such, it is not always possible to say, well, what is the cost and benefit of supporting agriculture to reduce its emissions? Well, of course, part of that is how much are you prepared to spend and what do you expect that that particular policy will do? So that work, 
needs to be done, but our advice is on the direction of policy at the higher level. All right. After the break, what would it mean for New Zealand farmers to cut their herd sizes? Tōtātou Anamata continues in a minute. We welcome back to this Q&A special. One of the important things to understand with emissions is that not all greenhouse gases are created equal. And while we've committed to net zero carbon emissions by 2050, New Zealand has a different target for methane. Cattle and sheep in New Zealand eat grass. Grass contains carbon and when it's digested by those, well, four stomachs, some of the carbon ends up in the animal's meat or milk some is exhaled as carbon dioxide, and most of the rest is converted to the gases methane and nitrous oxide. The animal belches <coughs> and urinates, releasing those gases into the atmosphere. But why do the different gases matter? Carbon dioxide boasts longevity. It lasts in the atmosphere for centuries. Methane, on the other hand, breaks down after just 12 years. And you might think, oh, that's good, that's great. Except methane is much, much more effective at global warming than carbon dioxide. It traps between 28 and 30 times as much heat. So if our beasts burp one tonne of methane into the atmosphere, it creates as much warming as about 30 tonnes of carbon dioxide over a century. Charming. To meet our methane reduction targets then, some have suggested we need to reduce our dairy, beef and sheep herds by 15% by the year 2030. Now, we don't know the final recommendation to government, but that cut, or the idea of that cut, is perhaps one of the most contentious things to come out of the draft report. Tim, what do you think of that suggestion? Yeah, well, first up, I think, Jack, and speaking maybe not for Rob, but the Commission didn't recommend a reduction of 15%. They were playing out some scenarios and, and indicated this could happen, could play out. So. That's the first point. I mean, look, the, the job to be done, the ultimate job to be done is not to reduce cows here, it's actually to reduce emissions. In fact, it's actually to reduce warming. That is our ultimate goal and we need to contribute to that global effort. So given we're so good at producing food, I mean, we're the world's best, we're the most efficient producers of dairy in the world in terms of the amount of carbon emitted and warming impact per unit of food produced. Same goes for meat. So we're, we're pretty good at this and we need to actually run towards it and, and actually find solutions to, so that we can have our cake and eat it. We can enjoy the economic, the social benefits of being good at this in the rural communities and reduce our footprint at the same time. That should be our challenge. So how can we, make, how can we meet our emissions targets without cutting herd sizes? Well, I think one thing I would say too, and that was a pretty cool graphic there, uh, one thing it missed to me is the split gas approach is more important than just the warming impacts, which does happen. It's also important to remember that CO2 hangs out in the atmosphere for maybe a thousand years, 30 generations, that's a long time. Methane, on the other hand, breaks down after about 12 years, so half a generation, less than. So the good thing is a bit like filling up a bath with CO2. If you want to stop it overflowing, you've got to turn the tap off. When it's methane, you actually have a plug out and the water's running out the bottom as you're filling it up. So actually you just have to have those things in balance. So with methane, we've got to bring it down to a level 
and stabilize and hold it there. It does not need to go to zero. And that's a really key thing that all Kiwis, I hope, understand. Okay, that doesn't answer my question, though. Well, how, how do we meet our methane emission reduction targets without reducing herd sizes? So the first thing is phase one. We're doing everything we can, pulling on levers, genetics, feeding, farm systems. Some farmers will take animals out of the system. Some have already done that. They're already on this move now. We'll get to a limit. And that challenge of getting to 10% in the zero carbon is going to really stretch us. Beyond that, going further, we need knockdown technology. And we're investing in it. We have for quite some time. So we've got to get, and the Commission have called out to the government and mm. said, get in behind the sectors, co-invest and really up the ante on this stuff. So we have knockdown technology to reduce methane emissions from the rumen. Mike, I'm going to come to you on this. Should farmers in New Zealand be reducing their herd sizes? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've heard the arguments that uh, science might find a solution, but I think the uh, one of the real problems is selfishness and greed, and there is no scientific solution to uh, selfishness and greed. So, the selfishness in the aspect that um, you know, 12,000 farmers expect to have special treatment, you know, in a country of five million people, and uh, and greed in the sense that they think we can continue to um, to produce uh, dairy products for an, for an elite. Uh, market in, in Europe and other places, and that's that's an adequate uh, way of using our land. So. I mean, I mean, from an economic perspective, though, you can't surely understate the importance of agriculture in New Zealand. I mean, if anything, over the last year, we have learnt the importance of agriculture to the New Zealand economy as our biggest export earner. Oh well, uh, you know, from a Maori point of view, you know, most of that activity uh, happens in the Waikato, Taranaki. Uh, those are areas of stolen land that were confiscated off our people. And so we've been denied the use of those lands. Uh, so there hasn't been much benefit to the Māori people what? of those regions. And so where have, if you follow the money, where has the money gone? Who has benefited from it? Like Tim pointed out, a, a herd reduction, an overall reduction of about 15% was one of the options modelled by the Climate Change Commission. What would you like to see in terms of herd reduction uh, targets by 2030? Yeah, well, I'd like to see uh, at least the 15% and possibly even more because it's not just, uh, as your graphic described, it's not just uh, about the methane being emitted, but it's the other end too. It's the urine, it's the uh, the obscenity that our the quality of our water is at the moment. Uh, it's the fact that farming is quite often dependent on synthetic fertilisers, which is causing you know mass devastation to our waterways, which in a climate-challenged world is going to be so important to have access to clean water. So our organisation, the... Um, the National Every Chairs Forum at our last meeting, we passed a remit calling for a sinking lid on nitrate uh, from mm. 190 down to 60 and a total elimination within five years. Rod, can you talk to us about some of the options, uh, some of the other options that might be available for reducing emissions from the agriculture sector, the likes of lower nitrogen feeds, integrating dairy and beef, once a day milking? So from the Commission's point of view, uh, our draft advice made it clear that as a result of land use change, in other words, some beef and sheep land going into forestry as carbon sinks, some dairy land going into horticulture as a higher value use, as a result of that land use change, as a result of things Tim's talked about, like applying the better breeding practices for low emitting traits across the wider flocks and herds in New Zealand, better feeding and farm management, then we can, we believe, achieve the reduction of 10% in biogenic methane by 2030, which is the first mm. of the statutory targets. But like Tim, we also say that once you get past about 2035, if we're going to achieve the next target, which is a 24 to 47% reduction by 2050, we mm. are going to need new technologies that deal mm. with the biogenic methane from ruminant pastoral agriculture 
or we will have to have smaller herds and flocks. So the Commission did not have a cull order on sheep and cows. We simply said, if you get this land use change, if you get the better breeding and feeding mm. practices, you can achieve these targets, but you're going to need to invest in helping farmers and supporting them to adopt the better practices, and you are going to need to invest in new technologies. Yes, that new technology thing comes up time and time again, but isn't it risky? Isn't it a risky approach when we have a crisis of this magnitude, Tim, to be relying on technology that doesn't yet exist? Where's your world leading? And I have to say too, Mike, I would challenge you, farmers aren't off the hook right now, and, and I don't think it's about greed at all. It's about doing the best for their families. That's actually how... They have been thinking oh, about this all along. We want to do our best for our families. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. Our, our families yet to come. I'm just, and just we're talking about the future, not the present. Yep. So, about so, so not maintaining forward. the status quo, but we're talking about ensuring that we've got a secure future for our families right. in the future, not just farmers' families, all our. Families. Agree. So let me get to that. Okay. So the thing is, um, going forward, we're not off the hook at all. In fact, we're leading here. Um, we have we're the only country I know of that is actually deliberately focusing on agriculture, like across the ditch in Australia and Europe. They're talking about all gases together. And hang on, let me finish. And we have got a special opportunity here because methane is such a key thing for New Zealand. Out of the developed world, we are out, uh, out here. We're an outlier because the fact we're exporting so much food around the world, it's a big part of it. So we have to focus on that. Now, if you look at other countries, right now we are working up pricing mechanisms because our farmers are going to be paying. Find it hard but, to but, but other countries, hang on, other countries are continue to kick it down the road. When are you guys going to stand up and take responsibility We're doing it now. We for are your sector? No, you're not. You're kicking it down well, the road. You're what? putting pressure on the government because of the power of the of the sector and its vested interests. No, no, no. It's clear. Yeah, I mean, come on. So at the moment, you're going to tell me about Hewaka Ekinoa and you're going to tell me about the ETS. I can see which way this is going already. So we have two different mechanisms there for charging uh, carbon use or carbon emissions in the agriculture space. We'll talk about that a bit more in a moment, but we'll just take a quick pause and look at some farmers who are already moving to make changes in their operations operations for environmental reasons. You see, this week we visited an Ashburton property where farmer Mark Saunders has reduced his herd while maintaining profitability. However, Mark's not confident he can cut any more to meet the Climate, uh, Climate Commission's draft recommendations. Our family live, breathe and are part of this environment. The environment's everything for us and what we do. We've been uh, aware of, of the nitrate impact on, on our soils in this part of the district for a decade now, and we've been focusing on that. And in, in so doing that, we've, we've chosen to drop our cows uh, per hectare well down from where it was. The focus on that has a link to greenhouse gas uh, reductions. So in the past, our per cow production was around the 430 kilograms of milk sods a cow annually. Um, this block here, we've achieved uh, for a couple of years now, 500, around the 500 kilos a cow. Um, so less cows per hectare and a higher per cow performance. Hey Jeremy. How you going man? Good, good. Good to see you. Good. Jeremy Savage is our farm consultant. We send monthly data off to him and he helps us review where we're at 
and where we're going next. From this cow, like some quite good go forward condition. Meeting future targets is, is really tough because we've been that focused and achieved great things with the nitrate story in this, this district. Uh, understanding where our options are in the, in the greenhouse gas space is, is another leap again. And so much is happening outside the farm gate, but where's the science dollar happening in, in, inside of what we do? And how much time will we have to achieve good science so we do the right things first uh, are still unclear to me. These next steps for Mark and Penny are really unpalatable because it's going to result if we drop our cow numbers any further, the cows aren't going to be able to harvest the full extent and what this farm can grow. And as we drop our pasture harvest, our profitability is going to start rapidly declining. So the next steps for Mark and Penny are going to really rely on, on adoption of, of good science, which we don't really have the answers for yet. We can say, oh, we're GE-free New Zealand, but uh, you want carbon emissions to drop too. So, uh, you know, th there's some safe ways of, of achieving both if you let some other things happen. We really started with uh, capturing good data and understanding who we are and, and what, our, what our footprint is, and from there, Numbers start to speak to you off the page on areas you could focus on to give you a steer on where the, where the easy wins are and grab that fruit first, it's there to be had. But starting with what you have and what your impact is on farm, understanding what that is and, and pulling the levers you can are, are options for everybody. That was farmer Mark Saunders near Ashburton speaking to reporter Fina Owen. Tim, I'm going to come back to you here. At the moment, the agriculture sector is promoting He Waka Ekenoa, which is uh, essentially an industry-led programme around emissions and the potential for future emissions pricing. However, agriculture is exempt from the emissions trading scheme, which has been in place in New Zealand for some time now. Why does the sector deserve special treatment? Well, I wouldn't say it's special treatment, it's being smart about focusing on getting the job done, which is what's the best way to reduce our warming impacts and contribute to that global effort. So that's where we're coming from. We're, we're on board with this. And, uh, and I think so this partnership between government, between Māori and between uh, industry is looking to set up a system where we can measure, manage and price and incentivise behaviour change. Rather than just taking a tax off everybody and, and treating everyone equally, we need to get people moving and shift them. And the best way to do that is to understand, like these guys are, what you can do, what levers you can pull on, and then incentivise people. So it's a, it's a smart way to do it. And I say we're world leading on this, and it's great that the government have acknowledged that and supported us in doing this. Mike, what do you think of agriculture being in He Waka Eke Noa instead of the Well, it's not, it's not a partnership with Māori. Um, I'll dispute that. It's a, the inclusion of the Māori dairy sector in a dairy sector group. And so that's not Māori. Māori people per se exist outside of that, and that's just the farming interests. So um, I'd dispute that. But you know what I see us doing is we're approaching a curve at the moment, and the whole we've got to make a curve in terms of economic development on all sectors. And if we don't make that curve, we're going to crash. And that crash, some people are not going to walk away from. So what I hear the dairy industry, industry saying is, let's go around that corner on two wheels right at the edge, hoping that the wheels are going to come down. And that's kind of pretty high risk if you ask me. So um, I'm saying, once again, at speed and scale, I think those people in positions of responsibility, whether or not they're sector leaders, ministers uh, for the Crown, have to accelerate their efforts. You know? And I know there's a problem 
with, um, with mandate from the public, there's a fear that they might alienate themselves from the public and they've got to take the public with them. Mm. But that involves investing in information, education and our communities knowing just exactly what the risk is. So we know when the haircut time, it's time for a haircut and a shave, that we step into, into that situation willingly. Now for Tortato Anamata, as well as our panel, we have a live studio audience. And we're taking some questions from our studio audience today. The first one comes from Abby Crutier from Greenpeace. Kia ora, Abby. Hi. Um, this question is for you, Rod. Uh, your recommendations for the agricultural sector are very timid um, in comparison to those for energy and transport. Is the Climate Commission just scared of backlash from the industrial dairying industry? to recommend proper regulation of New Zealand's biggest climate polluter? So I think the first thing is that Parliament has set the targets and the Commission's role is to provide advice on the direction of policy that would be in an emissions reduction plan that would put us on track to achieve the targets. Now, if people have got issues with the targets, then we need to have a different conversation. The work of the Commission says that with land use change, breeding and feeding and better practices, we can achieve the 2030 target and be on track for the lower end of the 2050 target. So no, it's not the case that the Commission, which is an independent body, feels at all intimidated by any sector group. Uh, and the reality is that there is work that needs to be done. Farmers do need to learn more about their own on-farm emissions. They need to learn from the better practices what practices will help them. I mean, it turns out that a dairy cow emits four to five tonnes a year of carbon dioxide equivalents. So any reduction is helpful. Sooner is better and more is better sooner. Rod, let me ask a follow-up question to that, and this perhaps cuts to the heart of New Zealand's response to climate change. Do our biggest emitting sectors have the biggest responsibility to, to cut emissions? Absolutely. There is, there is no way we will meet our domestic targets and our international obligations unless we deal with emissions from transport and reduce, not eliminate, but reduce emissions from agriculture. Timothy, oh, can, sorry. I, can I cut in just before yeah. we go, Timothy, sorry. And the uh, audience um, questions focus on the dairy industry. First thing is, it's not all about dairy, even though Greenpeace loves to use this highly emotive industrial, there's nothing industrial about our sector. This is a, this is a bunch of families across the country, pretty no, much. But let's come back to it. <laughs> no, Let's it's come not. back to it. So um, we don't have, we've got this be, free range great now. system across New Zealand we should be proud of. But, but I want to come back to this uh, issue that you just raised about the split gas thing. So um, it's only really methane we're talking about separate uh, a focus compared to the long live gas. Mm. So farmers just like everyone else emit CO2 on their farms and nitrous oxide. They are all part of the ETS now. Right. So it's really important to, to, to acknowledge that. Yeah, Tamitha, I want to bring you in here. You grew up in Tokoro. Yep. So you grew up in the mighty Waikato, an area, of course, synonymous with dairy farming. There is clearly a tension between the economic, um, short-term economic um, benefits that agriculture and particularly dairy provide our economy and some of the issues around climate change. How do we balance those things? Do you, do you have concerns that you know, the neighbours you grew up with if indeed we get to a point where we need to say cut herd numbers in order to meet our targets, we'll end up without jobs? Yeah, so just even listening to this whole conversation, I can see why we won't be able to make 
no, we, we will, I hope, but I can see why it will be so hard to make the changes we need to make for climate change because we've got, like, all of this, this conversation is so inaccessible, you know, talking about cutting herd sizes, like, when I think about the communities that I come from, mm. they're not thinking about those kinds of things, they're thinking about how they're going to get food on the table and how they're going to be able to survive on a day-to-day -day level. And that's not to let you guys off the hook, but it's no. saying that the government has a really big role to play in creating new jobs so that our whanau can actually transition out of these sectors and so that these, you know, actually holding you guys to account doesn't have massive implications on the little people. So what I'm asking is where are the new jobs and um, where are those jobs that, you know, I think the $1 billion for green jobs in the last budget was, was awesome and going in the right direction. But, you know, I look at this budget that has just come out and I'm asking where are the new jobs for normal working class, hardworking people. Mm. And they can't be caught between this argument between you guys and you guys mm -hmm. because we are always the collateral damage in these conversations. So that's what I'm asking is where are the new jobs? And, um, you know, they might not be the sectors that are, that are going to make the most money on, a, on, a, on, a, on an international scale, but actually we need to acknowledge that um, there are ecological ceilings and these are more important and, uh, you know, the damage to that is irreversible and that that needs to be the bottom line over economic growth for our country. But, but it has to start with, hard, with normal people and hardworking people, mm -hmm. you know? Okay, that's a good point. On that note, stick around. Hey, Akwene, this Q&A special will continue in a minute. mistake. Climate change is the biggest threat to security that modern humans have ever faced. We have left the stable and secure climatic period that gave birth to our civilizations. There is no going back. No matter what we do now, it's too late to avoid climate change. And the poorest and most vulnerable those with the least security are now certain to suffer. Sir David Attenborough speaking to the United Nations earlier this year. One man who needs no convincing is the Minister for Climate Change, James Shaw. Tomorrow he will receive the final recommendations from the Climate Commission. Kia ora. It's not the Commission's responsibility to set our targets. It's your job. Mm. Are our targets sufficiently ambitious? We have a number of targets. Uh, and um, the... Under the Paris Agreement, we've got something called a nationally determined contribution, uh, and the Climate Change Commission's initial advice, which they gave us at, um, in February, said that it's not even close. Uh, and so um, I'm waiting to see what they say tomorrow about, you know, the direction of travel there. But it, but it's obvious that, that that commitment needs to change, and it will change. ClimateTracker.org, which goes through the detail of every single country's mm. emissions targets, says at the moment New Zealand's targets are insufficient if we are to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees. Do you agree with that? Uh, I don't actually agree with everything in the methodology that ClimateTracker um, use, but um, 
the commission that you know that that essentially is, is consistent with what the commission have said. So so we will be revising that. When it comes to the targets that are contained inside the Zero Carbon Act, those are based on the IPCC report uh, from 2018 around what it takes to stay within that threshold of 1.5 degrees of global warming. That was the best scientific advice that we had available uh, at the time. If the Commission come back at some point and say, you know what, uh, we've taken a look at you know, new evidence mm. or things have changed sufficiently uh, and there is no way that our targets or our pathway is aligned with staying within that temperature threshold, then we will have to change uh, those targets as well. How much is life in New Zealand going to change? For us to meet our targets. Well, uh, you know, I think that life will be as different 30 years from now as it was 30 years ago, you know, and, and as similar 30 years from now as it was similar to 30 years ago. There will be a lot of things that will seem quite alien to you and I in the world that we live in, um, but they would, you know, the way that we live is pretty alien to, you know, my folks uh, mm. when they were in their 30s and 40s uh, back, in the, back in the 80s. So... Um, there will be things, as Rod says, in the way that we produce and uh, how we live and how we get around uh, and so on. Um, and, and that change will come at a greater or lesser extent depending on you know, what category you're talking about. Predominantly today we're focusing on milk, meat and motor cars and the ways that those are going to change in New Zealand society. But can you talk to us a little about the changes you expect New Zealand will have to make when it comes to electricity generation and our power grid? Yeah, so um, Transpower, who run the grid across the country, have estimated that we will need about 70% more electricity generation uh, in 2050 as we have today. So if you can imagine what that is going to require, and that's after energy efficiency matters have, have taken hold, what, what that's going to require is that we build two-thirds more electricity generation than we have built over the last 120 years. And we're going to have to do all of that in 30, and we're going to have to take the remaining fossil fuels out of the system, and we're going to have to deal with the inter intermittency issues to do with you know, wind and solar and all of that kind of stuff. So that's, that's pretty dramatic uh, in terms of the amount of, uh, of additional uh, electricity. Now I think that you're starting to see the sector, who haven't built a lot over the last 15 years because demand has been flat, suddenly go going, crikey, time mm. to start building. Uh, and, and things like the Turutia wind farm um, outside of Palmerston North, you know, a huge wind farm. We're going to need kind of more of those. We're going to need a lot more rooftop solar. We're going to need storage. We're going to need hydrogen. Um, and we'll probably need some more geothermal as well. How likely is it that for New Zealand to meet its targets, herd sizes will have to reduce? Well, I think it depends on what the sector does. Uh, you know, there, there have been... Um, significant improvements in productivity over the course of the last couple of decades where the per unit uh, emissions have come down. Um, but of course, the number of units has gone up, right? And so those two things, one has out, outweighed the other. Um, and so uh, there are farmers up and down the country who are you know, moving towards organics or to regenerative farming, once a day milking, other farm practices. Part of my frustration is that those things have sort of been seen as on, on the fringe. And actually, if we were to fully commercialise those and roll those out, you know, we could get, we could get huge gains because the evidence, I mean, it, it differs in different parts of the country mm. and different farm types and different soil types and so on. But um, the, the farms that have adopted those practices have already seen improvements in their emissions profile that exceed the target that we need over the next 10 years. Mm. So I think there's a lot to get, to get started with whilst we're working out the other stuff. We all know that technology plays a really important role in this transition. Would you be open 
to gene editing and more gene editing in this space to help New Zealand farmers reduce their emissions? So I have a, a kind of a conga line of scientists uh, who get up and say, look, you know, gene editing is scientifically safe, um, but there are ethical issues. And in fact, the Prime Minister's chief science advisor uh, weighed in on this recently. And I think it was a helpful piece of work because she said, um, there's a number of different things that we're arguing about, and the problem is we're lumping them all together. So one is, is the science safe? Uh, another one is, is it a good idea uh, from the perspective of marketing, right? So um, I can point you in the direction of a bottled water company in California that sells GE-free water, which is kind of bonkers, right? Because water is two parts <laughs> hydrogen, one part oxygen. It doesn't have a genetic component to it. But what that shows is that there are certain markets where, you know, that, that brand is so important mm. uh, that, you know, so you can sort of say, well, okay, it may be scientifically robust, but then, you know, what does that mean in terms of the value of our exports at a time when we're trying to move up, you know, increase the value of our exports rather than the volume of our exports? That actually, I think, is a question for the industry to say, you know, what's our appetite for risk here and, you know, how, mm. how would we, how would we uh, manage those kinds of things? All right, James Shaw, thank you very much. Uh, you will be joining our panel in just a moment. Stick around. Hey, Arco and Nate, we have some more Parthai questions from our audience as this Q&A special continues. My name's Rob Campbell and I'm a company director. Business is simply not dealing with the climate crisis at the level that's really required and we have to do a whole lot better. What we're trying to do is manage it as if it was something that we normally manage in business, maybe even like the pandemic, but this climate crisis is a pandemic on steroids. It's a whole lot harder than that and it requires a whole lot more action on everyone's part. Eventually, if we don't get this right, the ultimate shareholder, Papa Tuanuki the Earth, whatever you like to call it, is going to step in and change us if we don't get it right now. That is Rob Campbell, the director or chair of pretty much everything these days. Now we've touched on milk and meat, but what about motor cars? Transport emissions make up almost a fifth of New Zealand's greenhouse gas emissions. It's clear from the Climate Commission's draft advice we have to change the way we get around. So I have a question for all of our panellists. When was the last time you took public transport, Mike? Oh, let me think. It would have been just recently when I caught a train uh, out of Wellington. So, Relatively recently? Yeah, relatively recently. Rod? Yeah. Last week, bus home from the pub. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Minister? Um, I walk. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Mode shift is important. Yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah. Tamitha? Yeah, um, over the weekend. But even this question is pretty interesting because it brings it back to individual responsibility, which I think is BS. This is actually, you know, we need to hold the biggest polluters to account and not shame people for their options because lots of people don't have access to public transport and not everybody lives close enough to their work. Well, we'll talk about, we will talk about the, the, the shortfalls in our public transport infrastructure in a moment. Tim, when was the last time you took public uh, transport? A while ago, I'd say, but it was going to a rugby game. Okay. All right. We know we all have to find different ways of getting around and, and that our fleet size can't afford to be much larger. Tamitha, you have done a lot of work in the public transport space. You've had a big win with the, the millions of dollars carved out by the Wellington City Council for future bike lanes this week. How would you assess New Zealand's public transport options at the moment? Um... In terms of flying, you can't really reliably um, train everywhere, you know, when you want to go and see your whānau, but um, I think it's 
it's not affordable, accessible, um, or attractive enough as it is, and it needs major investment. And um, it's such a mess as well in the way that um, our bus companies are owned by international companies who will lock out their bus drivers and refuse to pay them a living wage. Um, but even just the accessibility to you know all the different parts of cities and, and, and urban areas. So um, for me. Public transport is the key thing that I believe will be a very powerful lever for us to pull in, um, you know, rising to our climate targets because it's something that everyone should be able to access. Most people should be able to access and, um, you know, internationally, um, lots of the major cities, you know, they have really good mm. public transport systems and we're really lagging behind in that sense. Um, but we also want people to be, you know, riding bikes and walking where they can. But for me... Decision makers, you know, at local and central government level have not gone far enough to make those options mm. accessible to people. So that's where I think that the Climate Commission advice maybe doesn't go far enough is that, you know, we cannot rely on electrifying the fleet because many whānau will never be able to afford an electric vehicle and also private cars take up so much space mm. on the street that can be used for communities to be together for eating, for walking and cycle lanes. So it's you know, we need more funding from government to be able to deliver those options for people. Thank you, Tabitha. Nina Ives from AUT has a question for our panel. Kia ora. Kia ora. Um, my question is for the Climate Change Minister, and it relates nicely to what Tabitha has just been saying. Um, so how will central government help local authorities meet their transport-related climate or emission reduction targets, given that, I know, for example, Auckland Council have indicated in their latest regional land transport plan that these targets won't be met without further financial assistance? Mm. There's a, a long answer for that, and then there's an even longer answer for that. Um, uh, so there are some things that we're doing. The last budget, for example, included uh, some additional funding for Green Investment Finance Limited to help to finance um, the electrification of public transport. Um, and the uh, uh, Minister for Transport, Michael Wood, of course, released a massive uh, consultation document about two weeks ago, which showed all of the options um, in front of us. Uh, and, and, you know, depending on where that lands, that will kind of determine uh, where it is that we need to, to get involved in. Um, the third thing is that Nanaya Mahuta has actually just started a process of looking at how we fund and finance local government um, because there's so much going on in that sector and it's really clear that the existing system is broken for what the modern needs are. So I'm expecting quite a lot of change in that, in that regard over the coming years. Property owners like their property values going up, but they don't like their rates going up, funnily enough. Mm. Do we just need to accept that if we're going to meet our emissions target goals, it's going to cost us more? Well, again, if you look at the Commission's advice, um, costs rise in some places and they mm. reduce in others. Uh, and, and so the net effect uh, of that tends to balance out whether you're talking about you know, job creation or job loss, um, whether you're talking about, um, you know, uh, GDP um, mm. gain or loss uh, and so on. The really important thing, and Timothy pointed to this earlier, uh, is around having a, a just transition or an equitable transition plan that ensures that we don't just take today's winners and losers and turn them into tomorrow's losers and winners, mm. you know, and, and that actually we need to take everybody with us and we need to manage that, trans that transition very, very carefully. Um, okay. Because we've been through major disruptive transitions in this country before, uh, some of which, you know, you could argue was necessary, but it was executed in a way that left a lot of people lying by the side of the road, and we can't afford to do that again. 
Now, in its initial report, the Climate Change Commission said electric vehicles need to be widely adopted and by 2035 need to be the majority of vehicles coming in. But at the moment, of course, EVs make up a tiny little wafer-thin percentage of our fleet. Here's Connor Sterling. Maybe it's time we hit the brakes on our car-centric culture. Nearly four and a half million vehicles on our roads produce close to half of all our CO2 emissions. A ban's proposed on the import of internal combustion cars by 2035. That's the petrol and diesels in use now. Electric vehicles would plug the gap, but those in the new car industry say the task ahead is monumental. The Climate Change Commission's advice is very ambitious in terms of the rate of uptake of electric vehicles this side of 2030, uh, no, it's not attainable. They collectively are less than 1.5% of annual sales in New Zealand. In the used space, things are looking better. David Page is the CEO of Two Cheap Cars' parent company. Yeah, we're definitely selling more, so probably over the last 10 years, we're now sort of moved from about 5% of our total sales to about 21% of our total sales, now being hybrid electric or electric vehicles. What are we looking at along here? Uh, these are Toyota Equas. These are our number one selling cars. We've had months where we've sold 100 of these in a month. Buyers I spoke to quick to see the benefits. Driving around the city, obviously, it's you're moving at a few miles per hour in the traffic. Quite good on gas. That's the only thing because if you compare it to the average, it comes to like nearly double. Environmental reasons. But with less than 1% of vehicles on the roads electric, drivers are yet to make the change. On top of the range anxiety, it's things around or what type of servicing are EVs requiring, you know, things like batteries, what do you do to maintain them? There is a, a perceived um, affordability question, so low emission vehicles are expensive, uh, roughly about to double the price of, a, of an internal combustion engine equivalent or maybe one and a half times the price. One option is fee baits. As the name suggests, buyers of heavily polluting cars pay a fee, which goes back to green car buyers as a rebate. And certainly being able to offset that, um, so those higher-end cars that are the gas guzzlers that are coming in with the more efficient cars, I think there's a benefit in that for everyone. However, detail on the 300 million put aside in the budget for low emission vehicle uptake is yet to be revealed. Minister, what can you tell us? Have we got a subsidy coming? Got a rebate, a fee back? I can tell you it's yet to be revealed. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask this. Would the government, in making its decision, consider some sort of subsidy or rebate for electric bikes? Look, I can't get into the detail. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. But um, if, you, if, if you look at the discussion document that Michael Wood released a couple of uh, a weeks ago, it had four scenarios for, you know, if you pull this lever and that lever, you know, this way you get this outcome mm. and so on. Um, only one of those four scenarios actually hits the target that the Commission's recommending. Um, and in that scenario, you kind of have to do everything, right? You have to electrify your vehicle fleet, you have to do massive mode shift, you have to really invest in public transport, you have to get freight off the roads and into the rail, you know, like, it's, it's kind of do everything. Um, and, and so uh, I, I don't think that there's kind of one thing that you need to do more than another. You need to do everything if we're going to be able to uh, tackle transport emissions. Mike, what do you think? Well, in places like the ESK, for example, where there is very limited public transport and people are facing, you know, um, travelling a couple of miles to get into med medical services, or a couple of hours, I should say, to medical services, it's obviously a problem. Um, so I think uh, a collectivised solution is probably the best. If the government was to subsidise um, electric buses, for example, and if we could get away from this notion of 
we're all driving around individually here, there and everywhere. So we've just got to have a bit of a culture shift, a bit of a mind shift. But COVID was interesting in that it uh, locked everybody up, you know, various times. And, and I think uh, the whole modality of, of work changed. So people were working from home. So we weren't uh, required to travel as far. So if we can localise um, localize a lot more, um, I think that's uh, part of the solution as well. Do you have concerns that, that poorer communities on the transport front are going to have a more difficult time transitioning to low emissions alternatives? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I think for a lot of uh, Māori people, we're a collective in nature. We'd actually probably prefer to all jump on a bus together and go for a road trip as opposed to driving by ourselves. It's much more fun to be had by, you know, by moving together as a group. So yeah. I think that's uh, part of it. But Jack, I think we have to remember that by 2035 in the draft advice, 60% of all the privately owned and operated cars in New Zealand are still internal combustion yeah. engine cars. A just transition is a well-signalled, well-planned, smooth transition that does not require us to scrap and make obsolete things mm. before they're into their life. But we have to get on with the change now. Mm. You're not going to be snapping your fingers and forcing everyone to drive in a no. sand leaf. Well, tomorrow. if we spent less on roads, for example, you know, I mean, we could shift a whole big chunks of money across to um, solving the transport issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but I guess the, the problem is that as long as we have people with their own private cars and multiple yes. per, per household, there's not enough space on the road for bus lanes and cycle lanes and footpaths, mm. yep. you know, which is where a majority of people mm. need to be moving on to. So, yep. um, yeah, I accept that, but, you know, we need to give people those alternatives so that they're choosing to get rid of their cars as opposed to waiting until they're at the end of their lives. Tim, how's the transition to lower emissions vehicles going to work in the ag sector? Well, those F-150s look pretty mean, don't they? Um, I, I think, think we've actually got a picture of the F-150. Let's, yeah, let's okay. get this. So this is, sorry to interrupt you, this is released oh. by Ford in the US this week. So this is uh, an electric version of its top-selling pickup, as the Americans call them. Now, the, the deluxe version has a range of 480 k's. It can tow 5,000 kgs, which is fairly impressive. You could drive one of those, Tim. I oh, I don't you. know, but our Kiwi farmers don't need anything that big. We're much more efficient, but I think the, <laughs> the thing is, um, you know, I think Kiwi farmers would embrace it. It, it, mm. and it comes down to the, the, the practical aspect. Mm. So, you know, towing load, as you say, distance, same with heavy transport. So, yeah, I mean, our farmers have always innovated. In fact, they will do a lot of the innovating themselves if you leave them to it. So I think, yeah, we're up for that. Minister, one thing that is interesting to note about New Zealand's um, emissions targets is that they do not include international air travel. Mm -hmm. And unlike many other countries that do in, in, yeah. include international air travel, is that a mistake? Well, when you say many, I think we're talking about three um, other countries. So international... Well, if we want to be a world leader yeah, on no, this no, front. Yeah. No, you're right. So we're actually contained in the legislation that we passed in the Zero Carbon Act as a requirement for the Commission to report back in 2024 um, about... Uh, whether we should integrate international aviation and shipping into our um, our measurement system and our, and our target setting uh, system, and actually, if you if you look at um, some of the modelling that they've done, they've left themselves a bit of buffer mm -hmm. uh, in there mm -hmm. um, in terms of the domestic economy. Uh, to enable that to occur if it happens in the future, um, which I think is a wise choice. All right, stick around. We will be back with final thoughts from our panelists shortly. Welcome back to this Q&A special. 
Time now for some final thoughts with our panellists. Rod, I will start with you. After you've hit send on the email and sent off the Commission's final advice, what is the Commission's role? Uh, the Commission will be ready to do the please explain of our advice, both for the Minister but also his colleagues in New Zealand. Uh, but we have a number of other tasks under the legislation, so we'll begin to focus on that work. We have to get alongside and work with Haywaka Ekanoa to provide advice to the government by the end of next year on progress towards the measurement, management and ultimately pricing of agricultural emissions at the farm level. We have a responsibility to review the ETS settings and provide advice to the Minister uh, during the course of the year about that. And then once the Ministry for the Environment present the draft of the National Adaptation Plan, we need to provide advice to the government on that plan. So lots of work still to do. Mike, what would you like to see in the Commission's final advice? Well, I guess I'm concerned about how close we are to the tipping points if we haven't passed them already. So that means that we've got a very, very limited uh, window of opportunity to make impacts um, on the future. So I guess it's courage, uh, speed and scale. We want to see investment. We want to see incentives. We want to see compliance and we want to see enforcement. Tim, what would you like to see in the final advice? Well, we, we think the Zero Carbon Act itself is ambitious enough. In fact, if we were to hit our targets that are there already for methane, we'd be doing our part for one and a half degree by the 2040s is what I've been advised. So that's, that's a good bar to go for. I think the, the message for, for Minister Shaw would be that we do have to run our own race here because of the uniqueness of New Zealand so that we can manage our emissions down but enjoy the benefits of, of what we're so good at. Uh, and the last thing I think I'd just back up uh, to Mantra, I think communities, empowering them, whether they be in the rural communities, whether they be in urban, is the key to getting people on board here. And so that's really key. And lastly, getting the plan, removing the uncertainty. And that's what this is all about, is getting that plan locked in so we all know where we're going. Tamitha, what do you want to see? Um, don't create new crises for my generation to deal with. Um, you know, keep equity and a just transition at the centre of it while also keeping up that speed, but please don't leave people worse off, worse off because of it. And please let local government, let um, iwi and hapu work with you and guide you and give us congestion charging and also just relax the statutory provisions that will allow us to do the things we need to do to move quickly. <laughs> Thank you. Doesn't quite fit on a visit. Yeah. Just to get it out, you know. Well Minister, one of the criticisms of the Climate Commission is that it doesn't have teeth, that there is no way the Commission can mandate the changes it mm. recommends. You might come into this process with the best of intentions, but how do you make sure future governments actually follow through with this advice? Okay, so there's a few things. First of all, the purpose statement of the Zero Carbon Act in legislation is that we have to operate within that one and a half degrees of global warming. So if a future government comes along and says, well, we're not going to follow their advice, we're going to do something else, then the else still has to fit within that threshold of one and a half degrees of global warming. And so my question to that theoretical future government would be, who are you going to ask to come up with something better than what these people have already come up with that still keeps you within that threshold. And in fact, the, the, as far as I can work out, the only variance, I mean, assume, assuming that the science is robust, right, and, and I've not received any advice that it isn't, um, the only option that I would have to vary it mm. would be to go even further, right, would be, would, be to go, would be to be stronger on it, because anything less and I'd be violating the terms of the legislation. This is your moment, James. <laughs> <laughs> this is your moment. You are in that space now. Your hands are on the wheel. 
This is your moment to do that. I'm not sure that's the right metaphor, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> your hands are on. On, the on the handlebars. On the handlebars. It's an electric bus. On that note, um, that is us. Kua mutu. That is Q&A for this week. Thank you to Mike, Rod, Minister Shaw, Tamitha and Tim and to our studio audience. We're off next week for Queen's birthday, but our next special at the end of June will focus on alcohol regulation. Marae is up next. Kia pai te mutuka wikinei. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.